0: Welcome back to Muse to the Pharaoh. I am your host, Darling Nisi. Late last year, we started a mini-series here on Muse called Planting Flags in the Funk, meant to be a deeper dive in topics related to Prince and race. Our first foray was an auntie's roundtable of women who were Prince fans since 1978, growing up with him in context, seeing him fall in and out of popularity, and understanding how they related to him as young black girls and later black women. Today, we're going to look at the topic of Prince and race from a more cultural context. There's a common trope that Prince transcended race, which is a tricky concept, mostly because race is not something that can be overcome. We'd almost not even say that he transcended racism, but more navigated or sometimes even played on certain ingrained racist attitudes or institutions in order to get people to pay attention to his art. Today, we're going to take a closer look at that and also how he moved in his career as an artist, but especially as a Black artist in America. So joining me today in this discussion is Erica Thompson. Hello, Erica. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Yes. So since you're a new guest, I always have to ask the new people, what's your print story?
1: Yes. So I grew up with Prince in my house. My parents were big fans. um, So I knew of him and I knew classics like Adore and Kiss and things like that. But I didn't really become a quote unquote super fan until the early 2000s when I was in high school. And I actually sat down and watched Purple Rain for the first time because I grew up with Graffiti Bridge in my household, which is probably different from a lot of Prince fans. Um, (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) So um, I watched it on BET because they were running a marathon as they often did. And I was blown away, especially by Computer Blue. And I decided after that, I had to go out get any biographies that were out and then get his latest album which happened to be rainbow children and i really i was really really intrigued by his spiritual message and that kind of set me on a path that i've been on uh since then on kind of analyzing his uh spirituality
0: awesome okay let's get started we are in the 1960s in Minneapolis. Um, young Prince is six years old. They've just passed the Civil Rights Act 1964, which allegedly ended segregation in public places and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, religion, or national origin. Much of the Black population that was in Minneapolis resulted from the Great Migration um, from the South, where Black Americans moved north for better opportunities and less overtly racist living. One of my favorite books about this time and something I recommend everybody read is Gotta Be Something Here, The Rise of Minneapolis Sound by Andrea Swenson. I think it came back out oh, like maybe two years ago, maybe one year ago. wasn't too long ago. But her book goes into detail about this time, and it covers so much that's really interesting. And also recognizable as you're thinking about how someone like Prince came to be. And they start to go into some of the cultural and um, stories of what was going on during that time. Um, There are a couple of moments in this book that stood out. Um, One in particular was talking about this place called King Solomon's Mines. Um, This was one of the first clubs in downtown Minneapolis that welcomed Black people. Um, historically, um, they were mostly regulated to North Minneapolis or um, the Rondo District and St. Paul, where most of the Black people kind of congregated. But this particular club had a purpose to welcome Black people, book Black bands, or even book people who, or bands that had maybe one or two Black people, where bands like this were otherwise either not welcomed or really banned from the downtown clubs. And I thought it was really interesting, you know, when we hear about Prince talking about, you know, we're all here, look at all of us together, the different races and creeds, and we're all together celebrating or enjoying music. When when he was coming up, that was something that was really rare. What do you think about that, Erica?
1: Yeah, it was that chapter was really intriguing to me. And if I think about so I live in Columbus, Ohio, and um, as a journalist here, I've been looking into the history of our city. And it's really the story of every American city that had these same issues. But I was really intrigued by the media coverage that was mentioned. Like there was a Minneapolis Tribune article that she references and it was called the title of it was The Great White Way and downtown is downtown Minneapolis nightlife for whites only so that that was really intriguing and then also how the city targeted that club uh, because of the integration there and specifically about the fear surrounding interracial dating because apparently there were a lot of interracial couples that frequented that club
0: right they had the the flying moral squad or something yeah yeah and so they were targeting they said they were targeting underage drinking parties pornography and prostitution but really what they were targeting um, or they would raid a club based on stupid stuff like locking the doors and checking IDs. And then it would like give the club a bad reputation because, you know, there's a police raid there. And then, yeah, like you said, they were super sensitive to black men and white women dating or even dancing with each other. I think when they were trying to shut down this club in particular, they would say things like, Oh, they have that R and B music there that invites bad, you know, people to the club or um, I think they were trying to revoke their liquor license and they ended up suspending it for 60 days instead. But literally, it was the only club at that time that where black people and black pens were allowed to be. And it ended up that they closed like a year and eight months because of all the racial tension and things like that. And then like that chapter and the chapter after also talked about, like there are several clubs that tried to do the same thing as far as only just inviting bands that maybe had one or two black people in them and the rest were white people, but still the same thing where they got a lot of, police attention and more raids and revoked liquor licenses really just because they had black people performing in their clubs. And I think that's really interesting. And, you know, like right now, Prince is what, eight, nine years old when this is happening, maybe nine. Yeah. And he's hearing about how, well, I guess, you know, as a black person, I can't be in a band and have different types of people listening to me without inviting like, this attention that I'm I'm, it's, it's not okay for me to be this way you know
1: yeah absolutely I think he experienced that growing up and then as he got older he experienced that at the beginning of his career so it was definitely something I think was top of mind for him
0: mm-hmm. and then like if we fast forward a little bit um we have community organizations like The Way, and you hear about that a lot, I know, in the, um, the Condensate documentary about the time. They talked a lot about how this was a place, as kids, they would go, and um, they'd have music programs there, they'd learn about African cultural history.
2: We also had a community center that was called The Way Community Center, and it, would, would, it was a shelter for kids in our community. And what it did is it it created a haven and a place to go to keep yourself out of trouble. Now what they did promote there, they promoted music very highly, you know, and the thing that was important for the Way also was the civil rights aspect because the Way actually at that time was a huge civil rights activist point of reference for our community
0: it was like kind of like the why but for black people specifically and it kind of started um after the um i think there was a riot in 1967 that was part of you know the long hot summer but for the minneapolis area or the twin cities area where they were like, okay, we've got to get everyone together, um, kind of calm everyone down and they had a dance outside of the place that was called The Way. And so, again, this develops into a community center where kids can go and it's a safe place and um, their parents know where they are and it gives them focus. And it was interesting because of how important the music program was there. They had like a summer arts program there and they also had like all types of instruments and classes and that's where, you know, Uh, young artists like Sonny T and Pierre Lewis would go to learn about music and also play um, these instruments like multiple instruments and so what was really cool to me because you know you hear oh Prince was self-made and he just came out of Minneapolis out of like this purple bubble of magic what was interesting is that hearing the culture of how these musicians worked was so familiar, if you're a Prince fan later, because they'd be like, um, every day after school, the young kids would, or they're teenagers now, I'm just thinking of Sony T. They would go there for four hours and practice. They became the house band. They would sometimes do gigs with older bands in the city, um, learning about jazz and funk and rock. And then the people who came in after them, like the little kids, this time being Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Andre and Prince would come in and just kind of watch and be like, wow, this is so cool and teach me things too. And it's like there's this whole community of musicianship in this Twin Cities where they would support each other and teach each other and kind of ingrain this culture of you've got to work really hard. You've got to... um, be good at what you do. You have to, because it says in the book that they would practice like all day and night eventually after they got home from school, and their parents would let them because they knew where they were. But this was just kind of how they worked as artists and developing themselves in their art. And it's kind of like interesting to hear that this was so ingrained as all of these artists who would go on to popularize the Minneapolis sound. Um, they all shared this kind of work ethic.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why books like Andrea's are so important exploring this part of Prince's childhood because, you know, when he became famous and he was doing interviews early on, he referenced only specific parts of his childhood, but not this, this community, as you say, of other African-American youths. And, um, we really didn't know about this so we really didn't have that context um so i think it's something that is really needed in the prince fandom and it's really important to his sort of origin story
0: yeah especially since you know when Sonny joins the band in the 90s if you listen to some of the the live work you can hear prince talking about how Sonny taught him everything he knew and and things like that and um Again, in Andrea's book, he talks about how Andre and Prince would be outside of his basement listening to him practice, or even sometimes um, Sonny would invite Prince in and show him how to do different things on a guitar or on the drums. And he said that um, Prince like just soaked it all up, and he really did mentor him in a rather personal way. And it's something, again, like he said, you don't really hear about that. But it's interesting that, you know, that that house band from the band um, with all those guys who taught those people their original name um, or their second name turned into be the family. Right. And, you know, Prince picked that up later as a name. <laughs> so yes. it's it's really cool how, you know, again, a lot of these things from this book or even from this time really gets carried forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um and there was just such a rich community of Black uh, musicians, according to Andrea's book. And even though, I mean, they didn't get media coverage, local media coverage, um, as Andrea goes to in the book, uh, but everyone was aware of, you know, who these bands were. And I believe they, there was a local record label called Black and Proud Records, too. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a ton of activity going on and a lot of musicians to look up to. Um, so it was really kind of remarkable to read about
0: yeah and, and even to your point of not getting publicity um, she talks about how the local papers wouldn't talk about the black bands or the music that they were doing or again they weren't able to play the bigger clubs because they were trying to shut them out um, due to whatever racist things that were going on there but they talked about um, there was a white kind of band um, showcase that covered local acts that black people are always shut out of and so the black people made their own so they they set it up in a hotel they paid for it themselves they invited you know the media to come out and promoters to come out and they were like wow we didn't even know all these black people were here like you know like the white mainstream and they're like wow this is really cool (laughs) the the music here is deep and and people didn't know and it was interesting because like you said it's not a problem like in atlanta or like the other black meccas, but in Minneapolis or in the Twin Cities, it was because everything was so segregated.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think Prince says that in a Minnesota Monthly article later, like in the 90s, he's talking about race rela- relations in Minneapolis, and he said, "I saw what happens here, and it's not like what happens in, say, Atlanta." And I remember reading that, you know, several years ago, and wishing I had more context for what he was talking about because I didn't know at that time. But I think Andrea's book uh, gives a little more insight to that. So regarding the press, um, the lack of press coverage for black bands. One quote really stood out to me in her book, Andrea's book. She said, um, the the press that they did get, it seemed more focused on the musician's oppression mm-hmm. than their actual work. Mm-hmm. And that really, really resonated with me. And I thought of an interview that Prince did later in the 80s, um, when he was talking about how he used to tease journalists because he didn't want the focus to be, be on his upbringing. And although he may have meant like his broken home and his family issues, it seemed that we can also infer that maybe he didn't want to talk about all of the discrimination that he received and how hard it was as a Black artist because he wanted people to focus on his music.
0: So, I mean, I think that's really important, especially as we get into when Prince is older now he's got a record deal and well first before that um, he starts playing on some of the records for the local acts like we hear about 94 East and different people like that where he's playing or him and Andre might be playing bass or guitar to in the band to support some of these acts to learn the ropes how studio works and we have you know the chris moon and all that stuff that starts to happen. So um we had the first um show that is at the Capri. Um sometimes you'll hear that it went bad, sometimes you hear that it went good, but WB ultimately ultimately decided he wasn't quite ready to go on tour yet. But There is a tour that happens not too long after that, and it's the first leg of the Prince tour. And a lot of people talk about the Prince tour where he opened for Rick James, but there was actually one before that that had several dates um, where they went out. um, Des Dickerson talks about it in his book, and it literally was kind of like the Chitlin Circuit thing. Like, sometimes they would have um, a gig at a place with a dirt floor, or sometimes it would be, like, booked at a country club. Not country club, like... um, place where it has a golf course but like a country music club and the audience would be like what's happening, why are you here? <laughs> um, and the venues wouldn't necessarily be big, it could be someone, like a small one from 250 to 1500 people but you know, this was a time where they were like in a station wagon driving all around, everybody was like, because you hear later that the revolutions credited it to be the last band he was in or the real band that he was in but at this time it was like literally hey let's hop in the station wagon and drive all night and hang out at the arcade in the mall or like really before he got too too big um just being um like a small group of kids together trying to make it right
1: yeah. And I think that this whole time in his career really endeared him to black audiences because, you know, that's who he was playing for. And that's how he started to build his reputation.
0: Right. As you'll hear um, I know we talked about in our um, previous episode with the aunties when they went to some of the larger cities they were surprised because there were these huge audiences there and they were like, wait, I didn't know I was that big, but he was also in um, magazines like black beat and being interviewed by like Cynthia Horner and stuff later to where he was introduced to the black audience, mostly promoted through the back audience, despite, you know, trying to play that line a little more um, because of what he saw coming up in Minneapolis, where if you are pigeonholed into, um, the box of urban or black or soul music, then you it's harder to break out of that experience. One thing I did want to mention is when Prince as a brand, as it were, started to open up to different audiences and how he was able to do that um, with the start of, you know, the Prince album not being as... Crossover friendly at some of the later ones. And I know Erica, that you had some conversations with Howard Bloom. Um, Is there anything that you can share with um, his role in helping that crossover?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Howard Bloom was Prince's press agent in uh, the 1980s. And um, one of his goals obviously was to break him in the white press. And um, he said that he sat down with Prince for several hours and actually learned about his background and kind of picked up a couple nuggets for Prince to talk about. And it was about his experiences in Andre Simone's basement and then also being inspired uh, by seeing his father- perform. Like those were two experiences that Howard really honed in on and that, you know, so you heard those stories in those interviews, but like kind of as we were talking about before, you didn't hear all of the context of what was happening in Minneapolis with the Black community and all of that. Uh, But also what struck me uh, from talking to Howard was the racism that Black artists had to endure in the industry. And Howard had a very long career in the industry before and after Prince. But um, he said this to me. uh, This is a direct quote. Um, That was a barrier I had been fighting in the music industry, that barrier between black and white. I began crusading for black artists because I saw the way they were treated. You had a black staff and a white staff. You threw your black artists, your black staff. You didn't think that black people could accomplish anything. So all you hired your black staff to do was deliver money to bribe DJs. That's it. But Howard really, really believed in Prince's talent. So he didn't want to see that happen to him.
0: That's crazy. And I think that's really interesting as well, because even as far forward as 1999, I did um, a a tweet and watch kind of contextually of some stuff around that time and I was looking at the charting for some of the songs on that album as well as how the time was doing and how Vanity 6 was doing and often um, the time was doing much better than Prince around that time uh, commercially and um even prince for his own albums charted higher with his own songs for 1999 previously on the pop charts i'm sorry not pop charts on the black charts than he did on the pop charts i feel like there's some interesting things i think maybe he broke the most with 1999 even though dirty mind was on the come up like you have the roxy shows you have him going um to europe to do some shows there probably as part of that um that goal to break him but it was still not quite crossover friendly enough or he had to almost dial it back from Dirty Mind to um, 1999 a little bit to come across as more friendly in a way
1: yeah, I I mean, it, it was a really gradual build up. And the interesting, well, I want to say a few things here. So um, Prince famously told Entertainment Weekly in 2004, it took me four albums to get on the cover of Rolling Stone. And, you know, if we think about contemporary times, like an artist like Lady Gaga or somebody can come out and blow up and get on Rolling Stone right away. But that's really not how it was back then. And it was really like extremely hard for Black artists But um, the the cool thing about kind of going back and looking at early press um, from the early 80s for Prince is that journalists were really open about the racism in the industry and what Prince had to go through. So I have have just a couple articles that I want to touch on really quickly. So there was a 1982 album in the Los Angeles Times, and the journalist says rock oriented radio stations avoid playing records by black artists even if the records have a rock slant because they feel rock fans associate any Black artist these days with the dreaded disco. Mm -hmm. This this blackout has only reinforced the rock audience's intolerance for contemporary Black music. And Steve Farnoli, Prince's manager, is even quoted just talking about how, yeah, the white audiences are slowly catching on. Like, we have records like Little Red Corvette and Delirious and they're rock records, but, like, for some reason they're not being picked up right away
0: Hmm. I'm trying to well obviously we're much younger than being able to understand this in context but I think it's really interesting because I I can't tell because on Twitter and stuff they'll be like oh yeah I've been um a fan of Prince since the beginning or a lot of people say that since the beginning like 1979 I'm like well there is an album before that but um it it seemed like a lot of people, if they were able to, were listening to the Black stations to be able to catch some of that sound. Um, again, on a previous episode, I was asking, you know, how did you first hear about Prince? And a lot of people who didn't live in big cities didn't even have a local R&B radio station to hear him sometimes. Like, um, even in Minneapolis, they had one station, but you couldn't hear... Uh, anything from it if you're outside of like a mile radius or something and so people would have to rely on getting records from the store or if they went out of town or if a cousin said hey maybe check this out it's like how do you even begin to discover it because radio was very different back then and especially because pranks will say it later radio was also very um regional so you know east coast listens to the east coast sound west coast, west coast sound south south sound and then minneapolis sound and um Sometimes you might hear others, but it was generally kind of segregated even among the same format. So um, I think it's really interesting how segregated it was. And also, again, speak to even Young Prince and the others where the reason why they had to have so many different types of songs in their sets when they're doing Battle of the Bands when they were kids is because they were just playing what they had heard. (laughs) And so really all of them, not just Prince's group, were playing like Jimi Hendrix and they were playing like Tower of Power. But they were also playing like white groups as well, because, you know, that's what they heard on the radio the most. Um, And it was common for all of them to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, what you said, you said something really interesting to me, I mean. Like you said, we're both a little bit younger. So when I think about Prince, sometimes I try to look at him through the eyes of my mother uh, because, you know, she was a black woman, young woman. She was born in 1958, so she was the same age as Prince. But she discovered him through vinyl, Um, you know, as you mentioned, not on the radio, really. Um, Her brothers were musicians, so they were always going to the store to try to find like the latest records. And that's really how she discovered his first two albums and fell in love with them
0: that way Mm. yeah that makes sense especially um among the musicians because everyone recognized that he was made good music and they thought he looked a little weird but it was still cool (laughs) 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 but it's still kind of interesting like in those early days he had such a a different kind of look and presence and then when he became more popular it it was a little bit less quote weird unquote um and, and almost like he's kind of packaged himself to be marketable, but also um still keeping a lot of that influence that was there before there. Because um one thing that was interesting with the different iterations of his bands, like the first band being Gail Chapman, Andre Simone as Dickerson, um, Bobby Z and Fink. It was a rainbow coalition, right? Um, But the front line was Des, Andre, and Prince. They were always out front, in front of the lights. You know, they were spotlighted. Des got... guitar solos or Andres in the back with the pants, (laughs) the clear pants and stuff. (laughs) Like it was like this trio of black men on the front line and that was that had a very strong image um for the time. And I remember when we interviewed Gail Chapman on um, Prince podcast a while back, she would note how she would be jeered at by black women and gay men um when especially when the moments when like her and prince kissed or whatever so it's like it's it's a it's interesting because he p- created like this image it was um it was a rainbow coalition but it still had a very strong kind of black leaning and then as he became more popular the the band makeup started to change to people who were Uh, in a spotlight started to change. And then with that, and probably in addition, in addition to other things, um, his marketability to a wider audience also started to change.
1: Yeah, I think this is probably a good time to get into the biracial myth a little bit. Um, And I want to say, in talking to Howard Bloom, I did ask him directly, you know, did you encourage Prince to lie about his race? And he said, absolutely not. I would never tell him to do that. Prince should be proud of who he is. And so it was really, I mean, from everything that I can determine, really driven by Prince and really kind of a smart marketing strategy, given all of the racism in the industry. I think, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, with people talking about Prince transcending race, I think um, they look at him telling Telling the media that he was biracial as evidence that that was an ultimate goal for him, um, just for ideological reasons. But it was really a strategy to survive in the music industry to be able to play different types of music and get the exposure that he wanted. And um, there, again, there are a lot of early articles that you can look at uh, where, where journalists are kind of analyzing him being biracial with the type of music that he's playing. There was one article in 1981 in the New York Times. It's called, Is Prince Leading Music to True by racism And, um, it, you know, again, the, uh, the writer references the racism. He says the fact that white rock fans and radio stations have tended to banish him to the black music ghetto says more about racism in contemporary pop music circles than it does about Prince's songs or his presentation. However, the writer is under the impression that Prince is biracial. So he talks about Prince transcending uh, racial barriers in music, but then also as a man. And um, so it's really, really interesting. And I think um, journalists' um, impression that Prince was biracial really helped them be more accepting of his music. And something else that is always interesting to me is when they talk about the types of music that he's combining, they always say white pop, white rock and black dance, Mm -hmm. black funk. Mm -hmm. And I think there's even some inherent racism in that to just kind of infer that black music is rhythmic while white music is melodic. So there's just like a lot of stuff that Prince had to navigate.
0: So there was a review of a 1999 show that was in Detroit and it was kind of nuts because the title of it was Colorful Show from a Hybrid and this is from the Windsor Star Ontario and it had wild quotes in here like, Prince the sexiest thing to wear a guitar wrote black and white bodies together last night and the multicolored sparks flew right from the start or even um, Prince reigns over a kingdom of physical carnality the first black male musician to become a sex symbol to for whites um there's stuff in here just reading through prince rogers nelson is a hybrid italiano afro-american and from minnesota and so is his music he borrows casually from many sources falsetto shrieks from rhythm and blues psychedelic guitar techno pop synthesizers Yet until a few months ago, only Blacks listened. Now ears opened by the new dance music, white and Black, are mingling in the gaze of those bedroom eyes. It's like, um, really interesting and and just an interesting way and phrases and words to use, like, from a hybrid that really kind of um, takes away his humanity a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) And kind of presents him as a product. But... There's so many people who came before him that did the same thing, like Smokey Robinson from back in the day, like um, Sammy Davis Jr., like even like B.B. King and like um, just like different people like that who had the same trajectory of for, they usually start in the church or something. Prince had some church stuff back in the day. Um, they start their own bands with the local gigs. They get a record deal. Um They're fine. They do really well in the black community. There's some kind of crossover event, whether it's like the Coco Cabana or they do standard covers (laughs) or something like that. And then the white people really love them and they become this sensation after that. And like every single really popular black artist goes through that exact same trajectory, even Prince. And then some people after that, you know, continue to be successful. But some people, you know, start to say, wait a minute, you know, Why am I giving all my money to all these other companies? And you have people like Curtis Mayfield or Sam Cooke who start their own labels, just like Princeton, or they start their own acts that they write music for, just like Princeton. It's like all of these things, it's such a pattern because I've been reading a lot of biographies and it's such a pattern that every single one of them do. But interestingly, in a lot of ways, Prince is thought to be the first person to do it. And I'm not sure why that's the case.
1: Yeah, I, you know, that's really something to think about. Um, But I think part of it is who gets to write about these things. So I mean, around this time in the 80s, the 90s, even today, I'm there are not a lot of it's better today, but there are not a lot of folks of color who were in these positions at these newspapers covering music that might have brought a little bit more context because they were witnessing some of those other Black artists. And, you know, it's not to say that every Black person in that role would have had this context, but I think if there were more diversity, we might have had more context.
0: Mm -hmm. Or even, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just thinking because I've watched the Sam Cooke documentary recently and the Betty Davis documentary recently. And I think it's really interesting. Like these are made, you know, later or recently, but both of them mention prints. And um, it's just really. It's sad in a way because it's like, oh gosh. But also, like, it's so cool how they're connecting, you know, the musical lineage and the culture from these artists that were so big back in the day and had such importance um, to now. And and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but even Prince passed the first couple of years where he was like, I did it all myself. But later, (laughs) when he is covering these same artists, like, again, I read the book about Sly Stone, same stuff. And, um, the they note him as you know an heir to some of the things that they did and as much as he credits them for teaching them something.
2: i grew up with them brothers right there they taught me about funky music And for the young people
3: i ain't talking to you but for the young people we're gonna show you tonight about funky music are you ready it's
0: just really interesting how like if you're familiar with that, Prince seems extremely familiar. But if you're not, it just feels like you're invited to the party where you get to learn all this cool black magic stuff. But that you credit to Prince, but not knowing that there's such a huge history and shoulders that he's standing on as well. Okay, so said a lot there. <laughs> um, there's something that um, kind of goes back to some of the things that you were saying about Prince being accepted as a rock artist. Um, in regard to his guitar playing. Can you
1: talk about that? Yes, I can. I think, I mean, (laughs) Prince just seemed really underrated as a guitar player. And it's, I, I don't have anything in front of me, but I seem to remember him speaking on that himself. But then other people speak on it too, like Just recently on Twitter, Dee Snider was like, Prince is, I think Prince is really underrated as a guitar player. And if you think about uh, that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performance um, that just blew everyone away, it just seemed to shock so many people who didn't realize that he's just as good as these white, great musicians that the industry upholds. And I think that goes back again to the segregation and the discrimination in the music industry when he he came about. I mean, he's having a hard time breaking on the rock charts. He's having a hard time breaking on rock radio. And for whatever reason, it just seemed like after Jimi Hendrix, there was not enough room for another black rock guitar guide. And I think part of that was maybe why Prince didn't want to be compared to Jimi Hendrix. He wanted his own lane. Cause it's like, there's only a, one other black rock guitar god that you guys even acknowledge. So I think, I I don't know, just the fact that he's so underrated, it just seems to stem from all of that racism. And even if you think about the Rolling Stone list of great guitar players, I think when their first list came out, he was completely omitted. And then when they updated it, he was number 33. Um, So Yeah, I don't know. That just always stood out to me.
0: Mm, Yeah, because I know you were talking the other day about people even knowing, you know, that he could play guitar like that. Because there aren't a ton of, well, there there are a good number of songs where they're featured. But, of course, everybody knows Prince Live is better than Prince on Record almost always. And it gives him room to kind of explore and, like, go down those threads of... Um, inspiration especially when it comes to his guitar playing and if you haven't seen him in concert or you haven't spent a lot of time listening to live recordings then it might seem you know crazy to you know or you'll get to rock and roll hall of fame moment and be like what oh my gosh because i know like there are some times um in the 90s where he goes crazy on ha goes crazy but has <laughs> amazing guitar solos as well like i was I always debate with people about the best version of She's Always In My Hair because sometimes we'll do like the first verse and then three minutes of guitar. So, or... Back in the 80s, um, doing stuff on Something in the Water or, you know, Chaos and Disorder, everybody throws away, but I love. But there's just not this knowledge, like you said, because people don't necessarily equate uh, black musicians with that guitar rock sound. I think that there's a guy um, on SNL recently. His name is Gary Clark Jr., He also is always kind of like when I see him out, people are like, oh, it's the new Prince on guitar because he plays a lot of instruments. Well, and he guitar, electric guitar is one of his um, main instruments as well. And it's just like, why is it? Why can't the person be the person? Why does it have to be the new something? It's like they did it to Prince as with Jimi Hendrix, even though he liked to be compared to Santana. And now they're doing it with Gary Clark, Jr. as well.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have no idea. It just, I mean, it seems that there's some underlying racism or discrimination there. It's just really unfortunate.
0: Yeah. So that was a weird tangent. So going on to the revolution and Purple Rain Parade, <laughs> you talked a little bit about this as far as him being like ambiguously ethnic and um, the images in the movie kind of being, you know, uh, it's a rainbow coalition and it it allowed people to see themselves like in a Wendy and an Apollonia because she was kind of like just racially ambiguous and weren't sure what she was and you had the Lisa and like the people who were not, actually I'm trying to think, now that I'm thinking about it did Brown Mark have a lot of featured
1: time in that movie besides a couple of scenes? I don't think so and I don't, did he, I don't remember him having any speaking lines Uh, maybe just like in the dressing room a look or something (laughs) i really think so
0: but i mean besides you know the time having their characters it's just really interesting like when it comes to the revolution um there are certain people who were put out in front and spotlighted and certain people who weren't and even like brown mark i'm thinking of like concert footage that i've seen of course prince is out front because he's a star but it's not as if he had a lot of big features either that's really interesting okay so um but then we have purple rain version of the revolution and then we have the parade version of the revolution which is the extended revolution so you have atlanta bliss and eric Leeds, and then you've got um wally and jerome and um like the other dancers is like this the the black dancer section and then we have sometimes sheila comes in the mix actually she was i'm not sure how many people know this but sheila opened for prince on the purple rain tour he had a great mix of people as well but I, i don't know like in hindsight um i'm not sure how many people know that but yeah anyway so parade had a much bigger sound, had a lot more people on stage. Um, It was really funky with the introduction of the horns. Um, The band itself kind of fell back with Prince more as a band leader in front. So the identity there was a little bit different than, you know, Prince and the Revolution. It was like Prince and all the people back there who I guess are the revolution (laughs) as far as the images. And I, I think that was really interesting. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I... And so, again, like you mentioned in hindsight, uh, I I just, I guess I just want to emphasize that because that's how we're looking at it, because we weren't experiencing these things in real time, our perspectives might be different from someone who was experiencing these things in real time. So I I do see what you mean as far as the, the changes in image, but I would be curious to know how fans felt in the moment. And, um uh, you know, uh, if- For example, going back to my mother, um, she really wasn't into Purple Rain and Mm -hmm. the revolution and all of that. She liked when he was doing his first few albums and was more toward R&B and soul. And this change in identity turned her off a little bit. And then she kind of came back around to Prince in the 1990s. So I think there is something to be said about a shift in image. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, just like when you said that, it reminded me again of our previous episode, a lot of them mentioned the same like when if you came up with prints especially if you were a person of color this these couple of years were a time where you didn't like him as much anymore and it was um, one person in particular had an issue with Under the Cherry Moon um, and then It was, like, the ambiguously ethnic stuff that they're like, wait a minute, you're black, and your dad was on, like, I think there was an Ebony article that said, no, he's black, his mother's black, and we're all black. And (laughs) and it was just kind of, like, this weird kind of um, step back, not step back, but, I mean, an interesting kind of, like unfortunate thing where you kind of had to blend back a little bit in order to be accepted by a wider audiences. And i saying wider W I D E R but also I guess that can go both ways. And then um but the interesting thing especially about Under the Cherry Moon as a character as Christopher Tracy, his blackness is undeniable. Like he had the do-rag, he had like Jerome in the way that they talk to each other, the mentioning of Sam Cook, like the way that they dress, um, their vernacular, all of that was extremely just regular black.
2: Man, that was dog. You mean she set you up to bust in on an old man's private business? She don't know what's good enough for Isaac Sharon. It's even better for me. She's back, honey. Yeah, but she ain't got no street. You no, know, I wish it was some way we could bring her down to our world and she could
3: experience the real fun. Tell you what, give me a dark room and a Sam Cooke album. I'll show her the real fun.
0: So I was talking to someone and she was just like, Prince seemed like someone who invited everybody to the party. Like for other artists, I didn't feel as accepted when I liked, you know, wanted to go to a Black artist's concert or something. But for Prince, it was different. Is like, he invited me there. He taught me about Black culture. He taught me about, like, Black music. And I felt comfortable, you know, consuming it because of the way that he presented it. And um, I think that's an interesting kind of way of looking at it, especially for these couple of years where it was kind of, again, like a rainbow coalition of artists together, creating and making music. But also, if you look at the totality of his career, it was just these couple of years where it seemed to be that um, inclusive of so many different types of voices and races as far as an image perspective.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. And I think, you know, there are a couple things that jump out to me. So with under the cherry moon, like you said, his blackness is undeniable, but that movie also flopped. So I do wonder how many people saw it, especially how many black people saw it. I know my mom didn't see it. And I wonder had, had she watched it and saw all of those, you know, cues to black culture, if she would have enjoyed it. But I think from just the outside looking in, when you see Prince with a white female romantic lead, and he's in Paris. You're just like, what is this? And mm-hmm. I can I can see my mom not wanting to see that. But I think also to your point about, um, you know, white folks feeling accepted or feeling that they had a place in the fandom at this point. Um, I've talked to a lot of fans um, who are not black who say that they were really into Prince around this time, but then they kind of fell away, and then since he's past they've um you know started getting into him again so i can kind of see in our like the discussion about transcending race this was the time that's kind of crystallized in their minds so it might be hard for them to um i realize how much his blackness did affect his art if they're thinking back to this particular time period
0: Mm. yeah because the time For some people, at least from a Black perspective, when they say they came back, it was sign of the times. And again, I have to go back to the image because that's what I'm thinking about. Um, The band, you've got Sheila on drums. You've got Bonnie Boyer on keyboards. You've got... um, Oh, my gosh. You've got Miko. Is Miko around? Yes, he's on guitar. We have... um, Levi Caesar, who will be around for a while. Eric Leeds, Atlanta Bliss. Um, help me fill in. Oh, <laughs> and we got Prince, and we got a brand new dancer on Red the scene. Brooke. Who oh, is? Well, yeah. Oh, go that. ahead.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I was filling in the, uh, the 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 male dancers, but yes. Oh okay, yes,
0: Those two. Um, <laughs>
1: yes.
0: We've got a brand new dancer. Who is his foil in Cat Glover? So now we went from you know kind of white centered images for the band to like Cat, <laughs> and, and we need her to rap and like <laughs> Sheila, and it's it's interesting to see because um, we haven't necessarily seen that from Prince before. Like Vanity was around back in the eighties, but she was still you know ambiguous a little bit we, we claim her basically and Apollonia is um Latina so Kat's here um she's a romantic foil for like the next two tours for um Signer Times and Love Sexy the band itself doesn't have a name anymore um they kind of fall back as an identity but you do have strong personalities in this band um for the Love Sexy band uh as Harold Pride likes to call the band with no name. Um, this is a time, again, you've got the Oakland performers shoring up Prince's band. Um, you've got, uh, again, Cat as a romantic lead. Um, and it's just very European in presentation with, you know, like the French kind of style and everything. But if you listen to the after shows for both of these tours, it's full of funk covers. It's full of, like, Tower of Power and Slice Stone and, like, traditional soul funk covers of music, um, where it's just, like, very obvious about where the culture is from and, and what musically things are sounding like.
1: Yeah, and again, I think, and I know I always go back to this point, but I think this is... This underscores the importance of having diversity in people who are writing about this history, because, you know, as a newer fan in the early 2000s, when I went back and read about this time, since I didn't experience it in real time. Cat's importance was glossed over a little bit. And then also, like you said, I, I mean, I didn't know much about the aftershows and all of these cultural references. And even if we get into the Black album with, like, references to Richard Pryor, like, all of that stuff I did not learn about until I listened to folks like Harold Pride. Like, there's um, there, a podcast called The Grown Folks Podcast. So, like, even mm-hmm. recently listening to Black scholars um, talk about all all of these references is, is really important
0: yeah and, and they're so often glossed over a myth like it could be a quick lyric in a song or like in a show he'll just call out um, the roof is on fire that was a thing that he did a lot around this time during the shows and it's like unless you know what that is um, it's just like oh, that's, like, a new kind of thing Prince came up. I'm like, no, that's been around for a while. <laughs> <And> that's, like, <laughs> it's kind of Black thing. Or, you know, if you're paying attention to rap at the time, it's it's been around. But, yeah, I definitely recommend that. I'm not going to, like, belabor what was covered um, in the Grown Folks music, um, Black album podcast. It's like three hours of amazing commentary of that <laughs> yes. time. But definitely check it out for the reasons that Erica said.
1: Yeah, um I so I think, you know, speaking of Sign of the Times and the Black album, um Those were some attempts, like some of the songs included on those projects were Prince's attempt to get the Black audience back because there was a little bit of backlash there. As I said earlier, folks like my mom, they kind of stopped paying attention to him. Um, And then also Black journalists like Nelson George were very critical of Prince at that time. So he, you know, according to folks who were around Prince, he was making um, a very effort uh, to gain that audience back and I think people might have a cynical view of that as in like, okay, it's all about marketability, you know, trying to get as many audiences to get as much money and not and not really caring maybe too much about what the Black community thought, but I think it's the opposite because if we think about from this point on how a lot of um, his band members were people of color and were in the forefront and how much he spoke on Black issues from this point going forward, it was obviously something that affected Prince and bothered him and something that he um, kind of worked hard uh, to make sure that he was representing his community. Mm. Yeah, I I really
0: mean for people around during this time to talk more. Um, I'm trying to remember what interview I saw, but they did mention that sometimes Prince had bodyguards from the Nation of Islam around this time, which I thought was super interesting and I would love to hear more about that but it, it's just really interesting like like you said the people who were around it was never kind of a question you know how much prince wrote for his own community but the people who were on the outside or were just coming in because i think kat once asked him "You like why did you choose me like i'm like a regular black woman why why did you choose me to you know be part of your group and he was really surprised that um she questioned him on that because she thought you know he would only be associated with ambiguously ethnic people or white women or things like that and and, um it's just really interesting how closely he maybe felt he had to keep that to remain marketable or um how, how true that really was to um who he was especially with his persona or his brand being about being true to yourself um but to fast forward a little bit to the nude tour and the introduction of Rosie Gaines. Um, again, we've got people from the Oakland crew being introduced. Rosie, for the next two tours, for Nude Tour and Diamonds and Pearls, will be prominently featured as a vocalist. She's an amazing uh, musician herself. She used to be her own, like, kind of musical director, band reader for her old bands, and she brought a really huge gospel sound. And it was cool to see, you know, the way they played off of each other in concerts because it seemed like he had a ton of respect for her um, when he would play while she sang or she would take over the whole concert while he changed clothes or just different things like that in her contributions to the music at this time.
3: Ain't no way. For me to love. It ain't no way
0: So of course we have NPG as a band that is named now. We've got the Game Boys with the, the, the slick look and the dances with Prince that he plays off of. Um, there's not really like a romantic foil anymore. It's kind of like this boys club between him and the band and also um, Rosie but it's interesting because, again, a lot of people are like, well, this is when I didn't really like Prince anymore. Or he seems kind of like uh, too, like the macho- Machismo was in there. Or the Game Boy seemed to be like a bad influence because it was so many dudes. and um, Or it's too urban or different things. There's a lot of things that get said about this time period. Um, again, which is really interesting because think but he's way in the back and you never see him and the people that you see are all people of color now honestly at this time they're all black
1: yeah I think there's a lot of nuance here especially when you talk about hip-hop too um because I think there is something to be said for Who has had a complicated relationship with hip hop? Um, There's something to be said for him trying to include the trendy new music. And, um, you know, so he can retain some relevancy. Um, I think we need to make room for that argument um, to be considered. And I think there are plenty of black fans who did not like his attempts at hip hop and didn't feel that they were up to So I think there are a lot of angles with that. Um, So, you know, people say this time period wasn't as popular. I think part of that is, hey, the music is not as strong as it used to be. But on the other hand, there is also room for the argument that the image, the change in image might have been too striking for some of his non-Black fans, too.
0: I think it's also... um interesting because we talked about how he started to win his fans back with like sign of times and a little bit later into the 90s and i'm thinking and this is a time where i'm starting to remember because we're old enough to remember these things now (laughs) but like i think like 1991 or so he got um an image award was it an image or soul train award around there and he's wearing like the green um outfit
4: Our 1992 Heritage Award recipient is probably the only artist in music history to be universally rated genius for every skill, including as a composer, a producer, and certainly as a musician and stage performer. Always the innovator and never resting on his laurels. He would also make his presence felt in cinema as the star of what is widely considered to be the greatest pop music movie in recent film history, Purple Rain and his Purple Rain music score would earn him an Academy Award. He would star in two more movies during the 80s under the Cherry Moon and Graffiti Bridge, both of which he directed, co-wrote and scored. As the leader of the New Power Generation, our Heritage Award honoree continues to reign as one of the world's most influential entertainers, admired as much for his provocative evolution of ideas as for his undying mystique. His overall accomplishments during the last decade were unmatched by any other artist, and probably unmatched by any other artist in entertainment history. Yeah. Our musical tribute to Prince features Miss Patti LaBelle for whom he wrote and produced the hit song, Yo Mister, Ms. Stephanie Mills, recorded the Prince composition entitled, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. And from the new power generation, Ms. Rosie Gaines performs the Prince classic, Nothing Compares to You.
2: To Stephanie, Patty, and Rosie, God's living proof with our angels, no, thank you. To Don Cornelius, thank you very much. Troy, you. you know, sometimes I'm criticized for uh, going too fast and trying to say too much. I just want y'all to know that I try only to speak when spoken to. And with your continued love and support, I can speak a little bit more.
0: Thank you very much. Ooh, I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was, it's real good. But anyway, um <laughs> this is like that's when he goes shh and it's just like, oh my god. But um he starts like especially in the nineties, he's on Soul Train all the time. Um, he's on BET, like a bunch of his videos debuted from there. Um in double awards, honoring him really until basically the end but it's kind of when the black community comes back around full throttle to support him he's on like Tabitha smiley he's on like uh sinbad's vibe show and it's just like this huge swell of support and i think it's really interesting especially when the slave stuff started to happen and how like some parts of the media were like what do you mean you're a slave? You've got millions of dollars. You should be happy that you are this successful. Or, you know, the, this whole kind of theme from a Black perspective of, you know, reclaiming, or I'd I, I say like claiming, your, claiming Black bodies, like reclaiming things that you own and how important that is as a Black person in America when so many things get kind of like taken or colonized or... Um, like appropriated to other things and it was kind of a a larger theme of i made this this is mine um i put in the work to do this and i should be able to control my own art and um again he's not like the first artist to do this because you know back in the day artists signed up to get their masters 30 years later and things like that and it was a big deal back then but especially during this time um it's interesting that the different angles of looking at the slave period and how people interpreted what he was trying to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also, you know, want to mention, of course, he broke, the Diamonds and Pearls album pretty much on the Arsenio show. Um, so, you know, that was huge. And I remember Diamonds and Pearls album being in my house, whereas a few other albums before that was not, were not mm-hmm. in my house. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Prince sought out Black platforms for a reason. And I really, like, I went back and I watched his interview on Sinbad show, where he's talking about his battle with Mourner and writing Slave on His Face and changing his name.
3: Everybody's always want to know all the names and the name changes. Now, I can't talk because I changed my name to Sinbass. So I'm the last one <laughs> to sit here and talk because I changed my name for, for my own reasons. And, and people, you know, people keep wanting to call me my last name. Oh, they'll call me by my name. Somebody will find it in the magazine. I said, man, why would you call me something that I don't answer to anymore? Mm. It doesn't make you closer to me. It just means that you're an idiot chasing uh, me around and calling hello? me a name I don't answer to. Hello. You know what I'm <laughs>
2: saying? Uh, that's sort of a precarious situation for me because... Um, to people, me, uh, I, uh, to, pe- to people who love me, I love. To, to people who love me, I get off on the fact that they think of me as a prince. Uh-huh. You know? So I, I'm pretty much cool with that. It's when uh, they don't respect the fact that I've adopted a name that has no pronunciation that. Um, it gets to be troublesome, you know, when they make up a name for you. You know, sometimes you go out and you want to, you know, promote your friends and our music, and you know they want to make up names for you and what have you. And you know, you you never treated me that way, and our city never came that way. I was trying to get free
1: CDs. I was. Trying to- and so they're really seems that... It really seemed to be that Prince felt comfortable with black media platforms and not necessarily with, with white media platforms. There was some distrust there because of how folks were making fun of him or weren't really taking time to really understand, you know, what what was going on.
0: Something else that was really interesting that happened during this time, um, Prince's support of other artists, um, whether that was through movies or um, especially spike lee because uh as you know the topic of this series is planting flags in the funk and that's actual a lyric from radical man 2045 um which was a song that prince contributed to bamboozled and the relationship between prince and spike lee is actually pretty interesting it goes back pretty far um do you want to talk about that some erica
1: Yeah, um, it's really cool about um, Malcolm X, the movie that Spike Lee put out um, in the early 90s. I can't think of the year right off the top of my head. But obviously, it's a very controversial movie. And, you know, Spike Lee really felt strongly about it being directed by a black man, and he had trouble financing it. So he reached out to several black celebrities, you know, who he said, you know, they really get it. They get what I'm trying to do. They get the importance of this. They get the importance of a Black person being behind this, and Prince was one of those people. And that that was huge to Spike Lee. Like, after Prince passed away, that was something that he brought up uh, time and time again in interviews. So, again, it just kind of goes to show you how important Black causes, Black history, Black community was important to Prince.
3: As Spike and Barry Brown labored on the second cut, weeks stretched into months. The Bond Company grew impatient, then angry. Finally, they pulled the plug. We were in New York,
2: finishing up the Scratch Mix. They came in with a piece of paper. It said, all work has got to be stopped at this very moment. All the people in post-production received a registered letter saying they were fired and their service no longer be needed. I was going crazy. How are we going to finish this film? Spike did a typically Spike Leon thing.
3: He went to people in his own community, told them what the
2: situation was, and got them to put the money up that he needed. And I made the list, but it took me like uh, two weeks before I called anybody. It was a hard thing to do, because I was begging. I cannot say it was, it was a tax write-off because that would be a lie. I cannot say that they get participation in the film because there was no participation. What, was, what I asked them was was a gift, so the film that we envisioned could be realized. The first person I called was Bill Cosby. I called Bill up, said, Bill, and he must have heard by the tone of my voice, because if I convinced finish, Spike, how much you need? I told him, he said, where do you want me to send
3: it? Emboldened by his initial success, Spike called several other prominent
2: African-Americans. Miss Winfrey, Janet Jackson, Tracy Chapman, Prince, peckett Cooper Capbridge, a great educator out of DC. Last two calls: Magic and Jordan. And so it was with those donations from these prominent African Americans that understood the importance of Malcolm X that we were able to continue. On May 19, 1992, Spike showed
3: the world that African Americans can indeed do for themselves. I'm trying uh, to remember
0: because I think I saw a clip of him talking about that and I was watching the video for Call the Law and you can spot like a bunch of ex, um, hats that people are wearing throughout the movie or or the music video. So it's just kind of like, oh, there's a connection there and it's deeper than just the trend of (laughs) wearing those hats, guys. (laughs) Or even, you know, like when they work together to do Girl 6 and all the songs on there are Prince songs and just, um... I really love how much spike promotes prince because even if you see like the new version of she's got to have it there's a lot of prince moments in that whether it's um one of the characters wearing like a prince pin on his label or the whole last episode where they danced to raspberry beret or he's literally mentioned like maybe every other episode so i kind of love how he kind of keeps people in the forefront or prince in the forefront of his work even still
1: Yeah, and we can't forget Mary, Don't You Weep being used in, what was it, Black Mm Klansmen? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, so fast-forwarding, or really I'm going to talk a little bit about Emancipation. Um, That's something that I super remember in context as well. And watching um, maybe the video for Bet You By Golly While on BET, and how that was very cool because Dominique Dawes was in it, and I was really into gymnastics at the time. And, um, I was talking to a friend who actually worked for EMI during this time and he said that again this was another period where Prince was trying to appeal directly to his black audience where they would link up with regional music stores and give them special promotional items or bring out black radio hosts to Paisley Park and do shows for them and different things like that where um, again a concerted effort to show that support or appreciation for the support back to the community.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, even the fact that he's covering something like Betcha by Golly Wow, and I think, like, a lot of fans are like, why did he cover that? Like, mm-hmm. that's not going to do well in the charts. <laughs> but it's, it's because he has a reverence for these Black legendary artists, and he wanted to pay, pay homage to them. And then also, you know, he talked a lot about this album on the Oprah show, Mm -hmm. the Oprah Winfrey show too. Um, so, so yeah, again, just really using black platforms and, um, paying tribute to black artists. And then I also want to add this, and this is like before and after emancipation, just really reaching back and elevating black artists that influenced him. If we think about George Clinton and Mavis Staples Mm -hmm. and Patti LaBelle Mm -hmm. and Larry Graham and Shaka Khan, and it goes on and on and on. Even like, so George Benson gave Prince a guitar and uh, Prince admired George Benson, of course. And so he would play that guitar at live shows around this time. Mm -hmm. And I just see that like as another sign of him uh, paying homage to the black musicians that came before him.
0: Or even the black musicians who were around at the time, because um was reading um, TLC, T-Boz's book. And she mentions Prince um, supporting them a lot while they were going through their record industry business. And how Prince would send faxes to like LA Reid saying free TLC, or (laughs) he'd show up at their concerts and play with them sometimes. Um, And then I'm thinking of around Emancipation Time, just listening to some of the Jam concerts or Love for One Another concerts or New Power Soul concerts who will cover like um, Kirk Franklin. especially since the next song right after it was like johnny i'm like you can't go <laughs> gospel to a song about your penis but it, it was really cool just to see you know kind of weaving in classic songs or popular current songs into the set list whether it's like tighten up um back in the early 90s or even in the musicology because he had that interpolation in there as well, or um, Flashlight or Sly Stone Song or just, they're all kind of weaved in with his music to where it's, it makes sense to how his music came to be.
1: Yeah, and I have to, I love D'Angelo, so <laughs> I have to get this in, but on Emancipation, on the song Get Your Groove On, he names checks D'Angelo, mm-hmm. and D'Angelo had just come out really around that time. Like, that's huge, and that just shows you how aware he was of what other Black artists were doing.
0: Yeah. So fast-forwarding a little bit to 1999 and the rave Unto and Into albums. Which were interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, what I do want to mention about this time again is the promotion of those songs. I don't know how many of them actually made it to like MTV and stuff. But again, we see that the romantic leads or the people, the women who are featured in these videos are all black. Um, This is a time where we had millennia come around who were... Background for Prince, um, and they also had like their own kind of mini group. I don't think any of your songs came out, but I saw some of the promotion that the NPG did for them. Um, but again, time where the image is pretty centered on um, kind of like black images, besides the randomness of the blue outfit, which I, I just can't
2: deal with well.
0: <laughs> but also on the album though, he was again collaborating or trying to collaborate with people who weren't black, like um what is it? No doubt, what's her name? Gwen Stefani. Gwen Stefani. She's on So Far So Pleased. Um Baby No Baby Nose had how- Cheryl Crow. Um Annie DeFranco was on I Love You But I Don't Trust You Anymore. And then she also had him featured on her song Providence, where he sang background. But um and I think I know he did a cover of Every Day is a Winding Road. And so it's just kind of like this time again we heard that he was trying to quote come back based on what santana did with his album which was way more successful at it and and um though most of the collaborations besides maceo parker and pretty man they were kind of like with pop artists that were popular around that time
1: yeah, I agree. It seems a little bit strategic. And then um but I do also want to mention Lenny Kravitz mm-hmm. uh because during the 1999 New Year's Eve show at Paisley Park that's on DVD, um he shares the stage with him, which I think is uh pretty cool. I mean, because uh, you know, Lenny Kravitz is probably quote unquote the new Prince. <laughs> rock, black rock guitar player, but uh, Prince admired him. And I thought that was uh, pretty cool that he shared the stage with him and they, you know, formed a friendship too.
0: Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'd always have to mention also Undisputed with um, Chuck D and the Random Hot with You <laughs> remix with Eve, which is yeah. interesting. But that album, those two albums had a lot going on, I feel like, but it's fine. So let's fast forward to my favorite, and one of your favorites. My favorite time period, um, which is amazing, and I talk about it all the time, and this is the only way that I can talk about this album in a larger context, because I don't want anybody to research so they can love it too, but the One Night Alone period... So we have, I, I kind of count it from like end of 2001 to 2003-ish um, so we have the Rainbow Children and we have what I consider as a sister album in um, One Nine Alone, Piano and Voice so the Rainbow Children often gets discounted as like this Jehovah Witness piece that's very much about spirituality and religion and a lot of people pass over it for various reasons but something that's interesting like when you start to really, really listen to the lyrics or even watch some of the footage from that tour, it's also very centered in a kind of um, a blackness. Um, some of the times, like when Family Name is up or different songs like that, if you're watching a concert, it'll show like pictures of slave um, auction announcements or like quotes from like racist or famous people who are racist. Or of course you have songs like Avalanche Avalanche from um When I Know On Piano and Voice where it says
3: He was not I'll never have been in favor of Setting H people free Oh no, no If it wasn't Amendment, yes, sir, would have been born in slavery. He was not or never had been in favor, no, of letting us vote. said you cannot escape from history. When he did this particular song
0: during this tour, he sometimes would have up a kind of slide of a quote from Abraham Lincoln. And it, and it said this, I will say then that I am not nor have ever been in favor of bringing about, in any way, the social and political equality of the white and black races, that I am not nor have ever been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry them with white people, and I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And in so much as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race." So if you can imagine going to a Prince concert, (laughs) and this shows up on the screen, and then it goes into Prince singing Avalanche, I'm sure it was... A rather strong message that um you might not expect if you don't read prints closely sometimes but yeah an interesting moment
1: yeah this is thomas jefferson <laughs> <laughs> no no
0: there's one like in canada and he goes
3: we found this tape in the akashica records this is thomas jefferson
0: but it's
1: not <laughs> <laughs> it's not how that goes <sighs> but yeah i mean as you said like uh slavery was was a really um It was a really it was a heavy theme on the Rainbow Children album through songs, as you mentioned, like Family Name and even um, Muse to the Pharaoh, Mm -hmm. too, has some of that in there. And he also has the Martin Luther King sample on the album Um, and then even the cover art. I mean, it's all uh, people of color um, on the cover and um, he's name checking again, contemporary black artists Macy Gray and Common and the music is it includes jazz. Some people like to categorize it as neo-soul. You can do that, I guess. Um, but then also funk, of course. So it's it's a really pro-black album in a lot of ways.
0: And there's one song in particular I think is always interesting that people probably gloss over in Everlasting Now. Um, a couple of lyrics. That seems like a little bit, maybe I'm reading into it, but it seems like a little bit of a... Autobiography. Now
3: I turned the page at an early age. His brother on stage, he was all the rage. I taught an integrated world the same. The color you are don't mean a thing. Everybody's a star, all the everyday people say Change a phone, put it in a bag Then you change the colors of the flag But you can't teach a dog new tricks if you tell no no matter how much money you made All the cars you got and all the women you
2: laid If you mess with the flag, them you're still a spade but Don't let nobody So
0: that lyric I think is pretty interesting And you know, I mean it a little bit kind of dove, Not Ted Tales, but tells an overall kind of story there Like you come out as a musical artist, um, you're bringing people together um, based on your music, Um, but if you, you know, no matter how successful you are, if you kind of are, if if you say some certain truths that people aren't ready to hear, then, you know, you're just...
1: I think you said it well. I think that's something to to sit with and think about. But I agree with you. I always thought that was autobiographical as well.
0: Mm, Yeah. So, I mean, definitely kind of sit with that album, you know, outside of the context of it being a spiritual text, which it absolutely is as well. But fast-forwarding a little bit to the musicology time period. So now we have him everywhere (laughs) he's on the rock and roll hall of fame inducted the first year that he's eligible he's going on um i think a concert tour that was made the most money that year um we've got musicology as an album that did extremely well uh maybe there is a little reason (laughs) why and that you got a copy of the album with the concert (laughs) but it was a good kind of um idea and he's out in popular culture and everybody sees him again. And it's interesting, again, that this tour is mostly kind of like a legacy acts type thing. He's doing the hits quote for the last time, unquote. And um, he has to rely on that nostalgia piece in order to be popular.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, with this period of course, with the name musicology, and some people get annoyed by this, is like, I'm gonna teach you (laughs) about history or teach you how to do funk. But I think the important takeaway is that, again, he's elevating Black artists who have come before him. Um, I think about the 2005 NAACP Mm -hmm. performance, which is amazing. In addition to doing his own songs, he also does songs by Curtis Mayfield and Aretha Franklin and James Brown and Graham Central Station. Mm -hmm. So again, that's more evidence of him reaching back.
0: (sighs) Yeah, and especially again, I mean, he does this pretty consistently throughout his career basically after kind of the You're purple right. rain time but like it's just a little bit more out in front where it might make it into the concert because i know there's some times in the 90s be, during the ultimate live tour um where he doesn't necessarily do the old songs there might be some sly covers in there <laughs> so i always laugh about that. it's like half the concert will be sly covers the other half will be from like come <laughs> or Go. but um But especially during the musicology tour where he does spend a good amount of time or even One Night Alone where he's like, it's WNPG and he has a whole speech about back in my day, the radio played (laughs) this, but where he's covering those old songs again. And um, he he tends to always have a section of the concerts of where he's doing the songs, as you mentioned. And it's interesting to hear, again, how well those songs flow together with his own songs. But also, and I kind of count this whole era being like 2003 to 2009, and he's back on um, Tavis Smiley uh, a couple times. Um, he is talking about the Black experience with in a more candied way. Um, in 2009, he talks about the state of the Black Union, and I do remember actually watching the state of the Black Union, and I thought it was really interesting with how open everyone was with talking about what was going on. And he mentions that he would have people watch, or especially white people, he says, oh, I'll put that in, um, come over to the house and watch those shows, or watch Hidden Colors, or watch like what is these specials and read books about, or even discussions about being Black in America and um, how important it was to talk about those topics.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, he told Tavis Smiley, who really became a friend and was kind of in the circle uh, with in, of intellectuals, uh, along with Cornel West. Mm-hmm. But he talked to Tavis Smiley about Dick Gregory being on the State of the Union and inspiring his song "Dreamer" um, from the Lotus Flower album. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these were ideas that that Prince was thinking about and incorporating into his music. Mm
0: -hmm. And again, with the covers as well, because you have Stratus showing up on Lotus Flower, um, which is a cover of Billy Cobham from back in the day. Um, I know I posted a clip of them playing, both of them playing (laughs) that on Twitter the other day, and it was really interesting because it's like, it's interesting because... Sometimes you wonder, you're hearing something new, Prince, new to you. And it's like, okay, so let me make sure. Is this a, <laughs> a cover song? Is this an original <laughs> Prince composition? And sometimes you don't really know. But um, it, it's something that I really like about Prince as an artist that he seems so familiar to me because he's such a combination of so many people who came before him that I also love. Um, and I appreciate that he does point out to those influences in explicit ways a lot of time. But did you have anything else about this kind of time period of 04 to 09?
1: So, yes, there are a couple other things that I want to say about this time period, Uh, but kind of going back, I think we touched on this a little bit when we were talking about the sign of the times era where there were more band members of color who were in the forefront. And I think since then um, and then up, you know, up until the time that he passed away, um, there were a lot more band members of color and um, Scott Woods is a writer who uh, released a book Prince and little weird black boy gods, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Please pick it up. Uh, But in the book he has an essay called reclaiming the black Prince and he kind of breaks down uh, the band members and I give me one second. I'm going to look for that quote. Okay. He says, of the 10 most well-known backing bands and side projects that Prince created, Apollonia 6, Vanity 6, New Power Generation, the 1979 83 band, the 87 89 band, Madhouse, The Revolution, The Family, The Time, and Third Eye Girl, he employed roughly 78 musicians, singers, and dancers. Of the people he put on stage with him, only about 24 of them were white, which is less than a third. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something to keep In mind, especially if, you know, at his most, the height of his popularity, the Purple Rain era. Again, as I mentioned before, that image kind of gets crystallized, but I think it's worth thinking about just how often people of color were in the forefront um, after that and until he passed away. And the Second thing that I want to say about that era is also, and again, I think he was doing this throughout his whole career, or at least maybe since the '90s, about mentoring young black artists or or encouraging them in some way. The length of their relationships differed, but we saw that with Janelle Monae and Alicia Keys, and I don't I don't know. Well, maybe even Beyonce. I don't know how much. They work together behind the scenes, but they perform together. And he talked about like sitting down with her and teaching her chords and giving her advice. Um, so and then even like later years, even folks like Kendrick Lamar and we think about Mono Neon. Um, so that's something that was kind of apparent during this era, too. And uh, before he passed away.
0: So same deal, because um, I mentioned earlier, Gary Clark, Jr., um, and how, again, another black artist, multi-instrumentalist. And he said that he was invited to Pasty Park to jam. And um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to go. But uh, just another example of Prince paying attention to what's coming up in the industry and making sure that, you know, they continue to control their own images and their own music so they wouldn't have to go through what he went through. Fast forward again. The Fro returns and he again is getting a little more vocal with his support of Black causes. We have the Baltimore concert that happens in support of Freddie Gray. Um, We have stories about him seeding a lot of funding for the Black Lives Matter movement, especially in Minneapolis.
1: He was one of the first donors to Black Lives Matter. So it was really important in its symbolism, important in its
2: very uh, clear statement that he believed in what we were doing and that what we were doing was important. I mean, he would find We
0: causes. have he would um, things. Um, maybe seeds of ideas like Yes We Code with Van Jones making sure that minorities are able to uh, create their own technical solutions, being able to code and being Black Mark Zuckerbergs um, as it were. And some interesting things that happen, um, like December, I want to say 2015 where he's um, interviewed by Ebony Magazine talking about the promotion of the Hit and Run records, but I remember then that coming out and what people were saying about it and they were like that doesn't sound like prince and they're like, prince doesn't talk like that and he was you know he was code switching because he was talking to a black person so sometimes um we talk differently to other black people than we would in mixed company and so you can recognize that but it was really interesting how many people thought that prince would never ha- talk that way and then come to find out um it was actually recorded and his words from that interview were just dictated as they were heard or as he, as he said them. So it, it's really an interesting time um, in his career and in his identity. And it, it really makes me sad sometimes because um, there is an interview with Donatella Versace and she mentions um, talking with Prince a month or two before he passed about how he wanted to be the face of Black Lives Matter. And I'm just trying to imagine what that would have been like or how well that would have gone over. Just seeing you know the comments that we're on the article from December, 2015 with the Ebony art- article and people were like, Oh, he's out of touch or he's just trying to be relevant. And then like how much it switched after he passed, but also what would it have been like if he was still with us and he was in that role, you know?
1: Absolutely. It's almost too emotional at times to think about. Um, I was just talking to someone today, like, because, you know, they apparently, there was an album recorded called "Black is the New Black" with Adrian Crutchfield, Mono neon, and Kirk Johnson. And I'm just like, what would that how powerful would that have been to buy that album it and then, you know, like even that's so interesting because I don't think I was aware of the extent to which people were saying that Prince was out of touch. But I just think, gosh, somebody of that stature being the face of the, of the black lives matter movement, it would, it would have just been remarkable. And um, I guess what I also want to say about this time too, like you spoke about, yes, we code in Van Jones. And I, I love how there was a Rolling Stone article, just not, not too long ago, just like maybe a week or several days ago about how the, the title of the article was how, Prince's social activist networks are keeping his vision alive and how he just left this legacy and in, in support of the the black community and um, how even yes we Code was inspired by the the, the killing of trayvon Martin um, so it's just it like you said it's it's really it's really kind of bittersweet but this is obviously a cause that was uh, near and dear to his heart
0: hmm. So I guess kind of to wrap up, because we covered a lot. We (laughs) Um, did a good job. Yeah. (laughs) Like, as a... I I mean, do we consider ourselves young? We're, what, 33, right? Yes. As a young black... (laughs) (laughs) As a younger black woman, and when you think about what Prince means to you and how he shows up in your life and um, what... What his important what his importance is to you as a black woman can you share like what your thoughts are about that or any kind of influences that he had or just kind of final thoughts from what we've talked about today
1: Ooh, i think that would take a long time to be able to express all the ways that he influences me as as a black woman but you know growing up with prince it, his blackness was always important to me to our family like even though there were periods where like my mom kind of tapped out um he was always in our in our household and i think it's always meaningful when there's such a towering figure um who is loved by by people of all races but who also wants to support the community that I come from. I don't know if I would be as big of a fan of Prince if he uh, if everything else about him were the same. But he was not in touch from his blackness, or if he if he were running away from his blackness. So like when I hear that from other folks, how they look at him and and think that he somehow transcended his blackness, which is kind of impossible, but that's just not my experience in listening to Prince. And if it and if it were, I wouldn't I I wouldn't be a fan. I think because I don't want someone to hear this podcast and feel like they're they're excluded because I think all people of all races and all backgrounds should listen to Prince, and I'm glad that they do. And anyone can write about Prince. Um, It's just that we are saying that we can't separate his Blackness from his art or from Prince the Man, the same way we can't separate his spirituality.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because, again... There's so much information that has come out after Prince passed, but there was also a lot of information that was there or around when he was here. And I have, haven't really thought about the context of Prince and his blackness and just the successive way that we have today, but when you put it all together, it, it really does give context to the way he presented himself from the beginning, like from when he was younger. And he grew up in Minneapolis where things were very segregated and he was watching incredibly talented artists be overlooked because they were black and not being able to play downtown in the larger venues because they were black. Or if they somehow were able to and then the clubs were shut down, it's kind of like you are already starting with a handicap there and being able to people to enjoy your music and then um coming up through the ranks at wb where initially he was given to the r&b department to handle and they have less resources and um less promotional um activities going on for those artists at that time when he was a smaller artist and then um having to change his image to become more marketable for a wider audience um having to change the sound a little bit, putting people in the band um, under the spotlight instead of, you know, having different people in the band. That may not be as approachable. It's it's really hard to hear things like, you know, Prince believed in all lives matter or people talk about the song Race in the Space I'm Mark Human and the things that he says there. When um, he overcame so much racism in the institutions that he was in, even, like, when he was successful, that when you hear a message where when you hear him saying, you know, look at all of us here together enjoying music, it doesn't matter how old you are. Well, he might have an ageism thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter where you're from. We're all here enjoying the music. And to me, as a Black person, hearing that sounds different than all lives matter kind of message, it sounds like I, as a Black man, am not so different than you. And I shouldn't have had to overcome all of what I had to overcome or slightly still have to overcome because of I look different and we should be all able to have the same opportunities we should be able to be here together celebrating we should be able to be here together just enjoying what is good music um, because of the good music because we're all human here together and this was not a reality that he had growing up and so it it, kind of has a different tinge to it And sometimes it makes me sad when people kind of minimize his blackness or say it doesn't matter or say they don't see color because it is so much a part of who he is. Um, It's something that should be noted and celebrated and put into context because um, he is an incredibly important black figure for our culture, for America and for all of us.
1: I want to read a quote again from Scott Wood's essay, Reclaiming the Black Prince, that kind of articulates him. He says, applying a cultural context that accounts for Prince's race as a matter of course and not a footnote or worse, irrelevant, broadens our ability to appreciate and interpret his music, as well as piece together a more interesting, honest, and complete picture of his history, ideas, and values. Contextualizing Prince as a Black person does not undermine his image or genius. It expands those things.
0: Perfect. So, Erica, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Yes, uh, so you can find me at apurpledayanddecember.com. I write about Prince and spirituality, and I'm actually in the process of finishing a book on that topic. And then you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at miss, M-I-S-S underscore E Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.
0: And I am Darling Nisi on Twitter as well as on Tumblr. And we are part of the Podcast Juice family by Michael Dean. And we will see you next time. Bye.
2: So there it is for all to see. Now what's beyond you and me. Depends my friends primarily. On how you view your role
3: eternity. If she could be muse to the pharaoh. Then one day She. she